And now, The Low Post. Welcome to an absolutely loaded edition of The Low Post Podcast on Tuesday at noon. Woo! We have a trade. We have Joel Embiid scoring 70 points in what is becoming one of the greatest seasons in the history of the league. An absolute majestic domination of the San Antonio Spurs, rendering Victor Wembanyama's 33 points a footnote. We will get to that later because we're going to lead with the trade. And only the Wolves, only the Timberwolves of Minnesota could have a player score 62 points, A, on the same night somebody better scored 70 points, and B, somehow have a 62-point career high turn into a demoralizing moment that may or may not haunt them for the rest of the season with Carl Anthony Towns getting benched late in a loss, a fall-from-ahead loss to the Charlotte Hornets, who stink to high heaven. Oh my God, Minnesota. They will have an opportunity to bounce back against three straight awful teams, the Wizards, the Nets, and uh, Spurs. In that order, I believe. And they better bounce back. I'm interested to see how they bounce back from that disaster. But we're going to start with apologies to Joel Embiid. I will wax poetic about you later. Because of scheduling issues, we're going to start with the Miami Heat. In a deal I have alluded to on this podcast several times. Trading Kyle Lowry and a lottery-protected 2027 first-round pick. Which becomes unprotected in 2028 if it does not convey in the previous year. For Terry Rozier, who is quietly averaging 23 points a game for aforementioned stinky Charlotte Hornets, um, and has three years remaining on his contract at 23, 25, and 26 million. The last one is mostly guaranteed. We'll just call it 26. Kyle Lowry is on an expiring $29.6 million contract. Really a disappointing end to what looked like a promising match between Kyle Lowry and the Heat. He is 5 of 30 in Miami's last five games. That's his shooting percentage. He has not scored more than three baskets, made more than three baskets in a game since January 3rd. He was benched over the weekend. The Heat starting a point guardless lineup with Kyle Lowry coming off the bench. And I think that did not go over super well. And the writing was on the wall for this trade once that happened. And the timing, therefore, is not a surprise. Um, in Terry Rozier, I, I, I mentioned last week that I think this was a place he wanted to go. I think he has no illusions about being the third and sometimes fourth offensive option on the team. I think he understands my days of shooting whenever the hell I want are over. And I think that's promising for Miami because he can score. He is only shooting 30% on catch and shoot threes this year. last year, but if you look at the three years before that, 39%, 43%, 46%. He has been, with the exception of one season, two seasons ago, a very consistent crunch time bucket getter for a bad team under incredible duress because the team has been so bad. Um, And I think, look, the Heat have some questions here in terms of playmaking. Terry Rozier is kind of probably a below average playmaker for a quote-unquote point guard or even a hybrid guard but Kyle Lowry's kind of pass and cut and transition playmaking had just kind of run its course the weaknesses had begun to outweigh the strengths 
Um, and in Terry Rozier, they get a guy who is only 6'1", but he has a 6'8 wingspan. He can guard up in size. He's a two-way player. And I think that kind of fort- a, a guy who can shoot threes and guard twos and ones kind of fortifies the heat and prevents them from having to lean too much, if at all, on lineups with both Tyler Hero and Duncan Robinson in the lineup, two kind of weak spots defensively. Both both have been fantastic offensively this year. I like this trade for Miami. I like it a lot for Charlotte. I think it's about as good as they were going to get. One okay to good whatever first for Terry Rozier. And it's a signal that Rick Schnall and Gabe Plotkin and the new owners, by the way, Gabe Plotkin, a key character in the movie Dumb Money, which I just saw on a flight back from Los Angeles last week. Not a great not a great portrayal, uh, not a flattering portrayal for Gabe Plotkin. Did not know that he was on the uh, one end of the GameStop shenanigans from years ago, but a signal that they have the right approach to the team, tear it to the studs, build around the young guys. More trades are going to come. Bobby Marks, um, I want to start here. I want you to clarify a couple of things in the bookkeeping sure. for me. This yeah. is what this is. You're just no one is better at this than you. The Heat already owe Oklahoma City a 2025 lottery protected first rounder that becomes unprotected in 26. This is a 2027 one to 14 unprotected 2028. 20, so two years exactly later and exactly mirrors the terms of it. How many picks can Miami trade now ahead of the trade deadline? And how many will they able to be able to trade after the draft this year? And I asked that because yeah. this was a moment where the Heat had to choose, may, maybe had to choose, maybe not, between do we keep all our draft, all our remaining draft pick equity dry, powder dry for whoever is the next star that says, I want to go to Miami. And we just saw that that doesn't always work out. Because the Damian Lillard thing didn't work out. Maybe it has worked out for Miami, but the star didn't get there. Um, it's worked out fine for Miami, honestly, I think. Um, or do we expend some of the draft capital for an upgrade this year that gives this team that made the finals last year and has made three of the last four conference finals a better chance to compete with the big dogs in the East? So where are they draft equity-wise for trades now and in the summer? I, I think it's going to be interesting how they how the uh, the the trade uh, memo is going to be spelled out here because as you said, um, they owe Oklahoma city a first in 25. It's got uh, it's protected unprotected in 26, how the rules are. You can't trade in back to back years, right? It's got to stagnate here. Um, now if the, you know, has uh, Woj had broken that it's a 27 first that's protected lottery that goes unprotected in, in 28. Um, usually what, how it, goes or makes sense is that if the pick is not conveyed in 2025 then Miami would get a 20 uh, Miami would send out a 28 lottery protected first that becomes unprotected in 29 and that changes things okay why that changes you're right what you're what you're saying in in plain English is that if you look at the mechanics of both of these picks there is a scenario where they would technically owe a 26 and a 27 which is not allowed correct Exactly. And that, that changes the dynamics because if, if the pick carries out to 29, then for right now, for this, this current year up until February, uh, the trade deadline, there's no picks available to be traded. Okay. Because if you owe, as far as how the um, protection works, if that changes and it says, which I don't believe so, and we'll get some clarification when we get this memo, 
if that says, well, it's two years after the pick is conveyed and it just turns into an unprotected, which I don't believe Miami would leave themselves exposed in, from that perspective, then 2030 becomes available, okay, to do to trade at this deadline. Let's roll to the summer, okay? Let's which is which to, is more interesting because yes, yeah, let's because just I say I don't see them putting something else in play unless something well, really and I don't comes and I don't see a player that's worth it for them and you know Donovan Mitchell has been the hot name and as I'm going to talk about later the Cavs are just winning every single game and there is no Donovan Mitchell trade going on right now so continue please so let's let's go to the night of the draft right and why that matters is that Miami has their own 2024 first that they can trade the rights to okay the rights to that player they, they strike a deal and then all of a sudden they will have their 2031 first available here because of the seven year rule. We look, we look ahead, right? We don't look back. So now we'll have two picks in play, um, you know, starting, uh, starting the night of the draft. Well, that's not enough to outbid any number of teams for disgruntled star X that becomes available, which is why we just saw another team that can't outbid the thunder, the rockets, the Pelicans and on and on the nets, even um, for said player, put their chips in the Indiana Pacers for a player who is a, a very good player, but not a kind of blow up Twitter, totally change the landscape of the NBA player and Pascal Siakam. And look, maybe it doesn't matter for a couple of reasons. Number one, the heat play at a different game than 80% of the league, the heat play the game of star players point to us, whether it's Jimmy Butler or Damian Lillard and say, we want to go there and it happens, in Jimmy Butler's case, at a price that you look back on, you're like, how did they get Jimmy Butler for just that? Or in the case of Damian Lillard, the Blazers decide to say, nope, sorry, we're not we're not granting your wish. So they play in different waters. Or conversely, it may not matter because I was talking to a front office executive from another team yesterday who said to me, you know, the Heat should just trade for somebody now on a minor deal because they don't have enough to get a superstar anyway. Like, you know, we already saw with with the Lillard thing that Tyler Hero does not have super duper league wide appeal, even though he's having quite a nice offensive year when he's been healthy. They already are out this one pick like they're not going to be able to compete at that level for those kind of players anyway, unless they're willing to put Hawkes in a deal. And Hawkes has frankly been so good and looks like such a central casting perfect championship role player that I don't think the Heat want to do that unless it's for like one of the 10 best players in the league or something like that. So I think this kind of upgrade, even if it chips away at that superstar trade ability, is totally fine given all those circumstances. And I think Terry Rozier is pretty good. Like I, I like his fit with this team. He's annoyingly perfect for hashtag Heat culture. Um, and I think he'll buy in right away. And the Lowry thing had just run its course. And you look at this team, I'm going to assume their starting five is now Rogier. So another ball handler score for a team that's 20th in offense and needs it. Tyler Hero, Jimmy Butler, who kind of like statistically, it looks like a, a good Jimmy Butler season, not a great one. But there's been a couple of games, including the last one against Orlando, where it was like, did Jimmy Butler play in the game? Like, where's Jimmy ten, Butler? And field goal attempts, I believe that game was. And like half of them were threes. Yeah. Um, Jaquez and Bam. It's a nice starting five. Coming off the bench, I got Jay Rich, Duncan Robinson, Caleb Martin, Kevin Love, and I can either stagger some minutes or play Haywood Highsmith as my 10th guy. That's a good, deep team. And look, I've said it before. like They may be six in the East right now or wherever they are. They have beaten Milwaukee twice in the playoffs recently. 
they have no fear of Philadelphia, despite what Embiid is just laying waste to the league. And they have gone toe-to-toe with Boston and beaten them twice in the last four years in the playoffs, including last season. Like, this is a team that's a wake-me-up, wake-us-up-in-the-playoffs team. We feel we can go to toe-to-toe with anyone. And I think this makes them better. This I don't think there's any question this makes them better this season. It makes their ceiling higher. It's a wake-me-up team when we get to the playoffs because of the deal. I don't think you can make that uh, argument if they stayed pat just based on how they played. And I know there, there's always the argument like, well, Miami will always figure it out, but man, you look at their last stretch of games here. Certainly they could have lost in Brooklyn um, a week ago. Um, You get blown out by Orlando, Toronto and lose at the buzzer to Atlanta on a Murray three. Um, And, you know, we, we always get to this point where like teams are like, Oh, we're going to wait to the deadline to do a deal. But, you you basically gave yourself a two and a half week, you know, kind of runway to, you know, figure things out here as far as with this roster. And you listen to, you know, Eric Spolstra, it's like, this isn't good enough. Like how this team has played. I'm looking at this like big picture too. I'm looking at it and and there is a, there's always a finite. And I think we always have to talk about the financial arm of this here. I'm looking at it from Miami took back less money in a deal, right? About six and a half million dollars less. They go under the second apron and why that matters, right? doesn't matter as much now. Why that matters was because starting in the off season, Miami was a second apron team. Miami was not allowed to send out cash in a trade. Miami was not allowed to go out and aggregate contracts in a trade. Um, All these restrictions now begin to lift as far as if, you know, if Miami stays pat. So if there's that big, whale that comes available, they can maybe go out and, and do something or maybe combine money here. Now, the heart, the challenge now becomes, and this is for them to figure out when we get to the off season in, in July, now you start to dance with that second apron, right? You've got to figure out what happens with Caleb Martin, who's got a player option here. You've got 184 million salaries. The apron's 190. You, so you again, have, how many, how much money they have in salary? You have 184 in salary going on for next year the apron is at 190 and that includes caleb martin's player option i was gonna say i had Um, them 177 yeah without caleb martin's player option which is a little more than 7 million and he should turn that down because he will get significantly more than that on the open market yeah so the cost it might be that you might lose him to retain to him do the terry rozier trade here um so there's that, like, do we stay in Pat and wait into the off season? But I think for, I, I, listen, if this team was 33 and 10 and, and Larry was playing a prominent, a prominent role, I don't know if they're as aggressive, as aggressive here, but I think there's a short-term implication. I think there's a long-term implication as far as why they went out and did this deal. Yeah. I, I think it just unquestionably makes them better. And if I'm one of the three best teams in the East or New York or Cleveland or Indiana, you know, and now there's, I think, if you, if you look at the East now, you know, there we may start to see, depending on how Orlando plays, we already had seen a gap between eight and nine. We may see with Siakam going to Indiana, Rogier going to Miami, and Anobi going to New York, and I don't think the Knicks are done. Cleveland being 11 games over, chasing the third seed, by the way, which really matters if you, you know, I said last week on NBA Today, like, we could wake up with the Knicks could be in the conference finals and that got some traction on social media and stuff. What I would have should have elaborated on is like, that's, that doesn't seem very likely the more I thought about it because the Celtics are the number one seed. And I think the Celtics are headed, uh, are at least ahead 
above Milwaukee and Philly. So getting to the conference finals from 4-5 means going through Boston at the second round, which is a tougher road to hoe. But we could see like a, a gap open up between 7 and 8, which would create a really fun race for the 6th seed, which is one of the things that the play-in was designed to do, was to make that 6th seed a target. And you look at the top 6 in the East now, Boston, Milwaukee, Philly, Cleveland, Knicks, Heat, Pacers are the top seven in that order. Heat and Pacers are tied. That could be a really fun race if Orlando kind of slides a little bit and they've been dealing with a ton of injuries. Franz Wagner just came back and no one is happier about that than Paolo Bancaro who's had to do goddamn near everything for them for two weeks now. Um, That could be a fun race, but I, I do think the Heat are unquestionably better. And if I'm one of those teams above them, I'm like, oh God, these guys... These guys, these MFers again, like they're going to come at us with these guys. And I mentioned the playmaking quotient and, and Kyle Lowry's um, sort of contribution to the, to that had waned. As I'm thinking off the top of my head, Tyler Hero is probably not going to want to hear this. But my thing with Tyler Hero has always been, and he's had a great year this year, I want him to be like 15% more Clay Thompson-y. And 15% less, I got to dance with the ball and do all this stuff. Because you can you can engineer playmaking without great passing if you have one great shooter who's willing to just fly around the floor and draw two and play that Duncan Robinson, bam, two-man game. We saw it with Struess last year, for instance. And I would like to see him with another ball handler now. And the Heat push him to, hey, can you can you be a little? I know you're you want to make an All Star team. It's not going to happen this year. You want to you consider yourself a star, and you're averaging 23 a game. Can you lean a little bit more in that direction, just to give us a little like side to side juice, give us some life on offense? Um, I think it's. I mean, I don't have too much. I think from Charlotte's perspective, I mean, I with three years and 75 million or whatever left on Terry Rozier is a good but not great player. This is about what they were going to get. I don't have a lot of strong Charlotte thoughts to you. I mean, they're yeah, going to I mean, obviously try to reroute Lowry and trade Hayward and trade whoever else that they can trade, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, that's the goal. And that's why you're doing this two and a half weeks before February 8th is try to reroute him. Listen, they've got $86 million in, in salary next year. To, the cap is 142. Okay. So you could say, oh, Charlotte's going to be a player. Well, no. What you want to be is a team that's taking back salary and kind of building up your draft equity because Charlotte has not been known for a team that they're not Oklahoma City or they're not even the Wizards who have slowly kind of added second round picks, really not first. They're not Utah. All these teams have kind of just added first round picks. They owe a first to San Antonio um, that's certainly protected in the next two years and likely won't get conveyed. Um, but if you're Charlotte, you you know, now I'm turning to like, okay, who's next? Okay. Is it, is it Miles Bridges? Is it Gordon? I mean, Gordon Hayward's got to hurt $31.5 million. But who, for me, it's nobody's except for um, Brandon Miller, who played really well in the, in the win against, um, against uh, Minnesota Monday night was terrific down the stretch. And LaMelo is off the, you know, those two guys are off the board. Um, but it's open business here. And, and in the, you know, the trade guide I wrote about, were, you know, was the, the people to watch were their, what are owners? Right. Like their ownership group were the people to watch just because this is their first go at it. How much say did Mitch Kupchak, their GM, have? And certainly he does um, in this deal where you're taking back an expiring and expiring in a first round pick here. But um, I think Charlotte's open for business as far as continually to move off some of these contracts. I think this is a signal that this is going to be a complete renovation of the Charlotte Hornets to the studs almost by this new ownership group. Um and I think everybody, I mean, I've heard Gordon Hayward is 
slated to come back soon-ish and that there is some interest in him around the league. His number is just really, really big. Yeah. Salary-wise, it's $30 million, I think, 30 million. That's hard to trade. Kyle Lowry is going to it's going to be a struggle to find someone to take him at 30 million dollars a year and send you out equal money. So we'll see the buyout market, you know, eagerly awaits guys like this. I've said before and maybe maybe this new ownership sees it and and it's it's bad for the rest of the league who are sitting there like vultures trying to see if the the Hornets are a team they can fleece. The guy I would be trying to get out of there, and I realize he's poison pilled to whatever degree that that matters, is PJ Washington. If yeah. I were a, if I were a good no, PJ is not poison pilled. He's not no because he didn't. He just signed a, a regular contract, right? Standard contract. Oh, okay. So someone, in a, someone yeah. on another team told me he was poison no, pilled. Well, that's just good. Rookies, just a rookie. So yeah, I mean that's a great number, fifteen and change, right around there. That's a, that's another one. I I've said all along, like the guys, you know, these guys with these non max. And in that 20 range below, even below, like they got so much value out there because they're like, they're the fourth or fifth guy on a team, right? We got our two guys. We got in like, like Indiana, we got our two guys, Siakam and, and Halbert. Now we got to figure out like those $20 million guys, those $15 million guys. And that it's just like, you know, kind of doing a puzzle piece. I, I have mentioned PJ Washington for a few teams before, just because again, if I were a team that had the draft equity to do it, I think, I mean, he's obviously young. He's pretty positionally versatile, at least at the four and the five. His defense has slipped this year, but again, he's playing on a team with no stakes. It's similar to Rozier. I think you'll see Rozier's effort on defense perk up significantly in hashtag heat culture. Um, I don't know if PJ is quite versatile enough to consistently switch like two, three, four, five on defense, but he's in. he, he can sniff that on the right nights. He can shoot. Shooting's a little down this year. I'm, I don't worry about that. I've mentioned him specifically for Oklahoma City before, and everybody wants Oklahoma City to go go get a center. Chet's skinny; he gets pushed around every now and then. I get it. Like I don't, I don't mind that if I can find the right kind of guy. Um, it it's not that easy, right, to to find a great center who fits exactly what they need. If I can't find that, I want a four. I want someone who pencils in right as a four and kids. And like, if I'm the Thunder, like again, my threshold is. Do you have a little more juice than like the Aaron Wiggins, Kenrich Williams, Casey uh, Wallace has been awesome. I'm going to exclude him from this discussion. Yeah. Those bench guys and a little more size maybe in some cases. And I, I've been tempted to overpay in terms of draft picks for P.J. Washington if I were them. Now you're telling me he's not poison. Oh, I just got excited. No, Why? good. We don't have this, to figure out the formula. <laughs> this is a lot of trades, by the way, um, for Ton. this. this, this, this we this never... Is a, Usually we, we Hutchmore got traded like like around now, um, but like everything before that was always like like a financial related deals. Like there have been some you know, certainly removed the Harden trade, but there have been impact trades as far as Siakam. Then uh, before that, you know Ananobi and quickly and Barrett. Um, and yeah, there's been um, there's been a lot of movement as far as I think you just get as I said like hey this is the best we're gonna do. Let's just do it. Why are we gonna wait till you know February fourth or February fifth? I honestly, you mentioned those Murray buzzer beaters that the Hawks had over the weekend, two of them uh, in a row. I They were playing so badly before those games. Yeah. And they had had a couple of defensive performances where they just totally let go of the rope as a Indiana, team. Indiana and Washington. Washington. Right? With the two back-to-back. And, and even, and, and even the Philly. Yeah. Even, well, even Philly before that without Embiid. I believe Embiid missed that game and they still hung like 130 on the Hawks. Yeah. And just watching the games... 
it was borderline. It's it's a little disconcerting to watch a team just fall apart in real time, and that's where the Hawks were before those games. I actually wondered, like, is it getting so dire there that they may just rip the Band-Aid off a month or three weeks before the trade deadline too. Then now they've won these two games they've lost since then. And Trey Young is in the concussion protocol. So that complicates things a little bit, but good trade uh, for the heat. Good trade for the Hornets. Bobby Marks, you got trade stuff to do. Go do it. Let's bring on Tim Bontemps to talk about Joel Embiid, the Cleveland Cavaliers and a lot of other Eastern conference stuff. Thank you, Bobby. Thanks buddy. All right, we just did the Terry Rozier trade. I should have mentioned while we were doing that in talking about future Miami trades that his salary is kind of tailor-made for that, but that's neither here nor there at this point. Tim Bontemps, how are you? Doing well, Zach. Interesting uh, interesting 24 hours in the NBA, I would say, culminated by this trade. I would say so. You have any thoughts on the trade you want to get out into the world? Uh, um, it's interesting that Miami chose to make this deal now. Uh, giving up one of these firsts and, you know, moving on from Kyle Lowry to add some future salary, right. To get Terry Rozier. He's an interesting fit with their team. Um, we've seen Terry have some big moments in the playoffs, you know, back with Boston um, before he ended up in Charlotte as part of the Gordon Hayward deal a few years ago. Um, you know, ultimately, or actually, no, I was a separate deal. Never mind. Um, but he ended up in Charlotte. I'll be interested to see how he plays for Miami. I'm interested to see if there's more moves for them going forward. And I, I think overall, it's going to be interesting to see where Kyle Lowry winds up because he had a pretty decent year for Miami. Um, the first part of the year was healthy, sort of kept them afloat when they had a lot of guys coming in and out of the lineup uh, at the point guard spot. And I don't think he's going to end the season in Charlotte. So whether it's another trade or a buyout, I suspect he'll end up on a contending team. And, you know, it'll be interesting to see what team that is and if he can have another impact in the playoffs like he has the last couple of years in Miami. Let's talk about a team that we know will be on the lookout for upgrades via trade or anything else. You were at Wemby and Bede last night, which just turned into Embiid. 70 points, 7-0. On 24 of 41 from the field, 21 free throws, 18 rebounds, 5 assists, only 1 turnover. An absolute just destruction of the Spurs. Joel Embiid, I, I have the email from Stats Williams is like 4 pages long of Joel <laughs> Embiid's stats. There's quite the missive from Stats today. Here, here are his stats for the season. He's averaging 36 points a game. 12 rebounds, 6 assists, 54% shooting, 36% from 3. 53% on long twos. It's a joke. It's an absolute joke. He just walks in to these 18-footers. And Tyrese Maxey, I've talked about it many times, every game they get a little more in sync on the pick and roll. Every game they explore new little wrinkles. What can we do over here? What about a handoff? But And, and what's really changed in the last three weeks is He's Maxi leading Embiid with these little bounce pass pocket passes, leading him in rhythm, in stride, into those same 15-foot, 13-foot, 18-foot jumpers that won him the MVP last year with James Harden leading him into those shots. Tyrese Maxey has, has figured out how and when to get him into those shots. Um, here, I'm just going to just – here's the Stats Williams email. 
Embiid is the ninth player with 70 points ever. The first player in Sixers history. The third center joining Wilt Chamberlain, who's an anomaly, and David Robinson, who was gunning for the scoring title on the last day of the season. The first player ever, period, with 70 points, 15 rebounds, and five assists in a game. The fewest minutes played in a 70-point game. Kudos to the Spurs for keeping it close enough that Embiid had to come in the game in the fourth quarter. Uh, Right now, he has, for the season, 1,156 points in 1,096 minutes. More points than minutes. Only Wilt Chamberlain has ever done that for a full season. More points than averaging a point a minute, rather. And he did that once in 61-62, which is the all-time statistical anomaly season. It's the Oscar Robertson triple-double season. It's the Wilt 50-point season, et cetera, et cetera. Joel Embiid is averaging 1.05 points per minute. That would be the most in the history of the NBA. He leads the league in made two-point jump shots. This is a seven-foot center who leads the league in made two-point jump shots. He's shooting 47% on all jumpers. Twos, threes, fours, fives, sixes. Best in the NBA. Best among 49 players with at least 300-plus such attempts. That's according to Second Spectrum. Defensively, he ranks in the top five in effective field goal percentage allowed as the contesting defender. And by this is Stats Williams. And by the way, he leads the league in shots contested around the basket. Uh, that's among people who have contested 400 shots per for the season. He is currently averaging 36, 12, and 6. He would be the seventh player ever to average 35 points in a season. The third player ever to go 35 and 10, Wilt and Elgin Baylor. The second player to go 35, 10, and 5, Wilt Chamberlain. This is... I mean, this is craziness. It's just flat-out craziness. And I understand scoring is up, but it's still crazy. And look, its I don't want to talk about the MVP yet. He, he's played 350 minutes fewer and nine, uh, 11 games fewer than Jokic. And there's other candidates. Shea, Luka, Giannis has been totally underplayed in the MVP race. But the statistics are just an avalanche of domination. And... You know, he's seen every scheme. He's seen Boston. He's seen double teams. He's seen zones. You were at the game last night. What What are you going to remember from the game? Was there a basket? Was there something after the game? I mean, it must have been... That's a game where you must just sit back and say, man, what what a night. I'm lucky to be here. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. I went to the game... Andrew Lopez, a colleague, was there, and I went to the game because I had some meetings lined up, and uh, I hadn't seen Victor Wembanyama in person since Summer League. It was his first NBA game I was going to see him play in, so I was looking forward to that. And, um, you know, the game starts, and Victor hits two threes, back-to-back possessions. Like, okay, like this is going to be a fun game. Victor looks locked in. And then, you know... Joel just did, I mean, he ended up with 24 points in the first quarter, which he does kind of often. He has 20, I mean, he's had 20 points or more in the first quarter a lot lately. So you kind of go, all right. Um, it just was, it, I was at the game last year against Utah. I was sitting with Doris Burke when he had 59 and he scored, I think, 26 of their 27. He scored all but one point in the fourth quarter. I think it was 26 to 27 to lead the Sixers to a win on the second night of a back-to-back probably the best quarter I've ever seen anybody play in person. Um, But the way he, I mean, when he ended up with 59 through three quarters, 
it was really just a question of were the Spurs going to hang around long enough that he was going to get back in the game. And just watching that fourth quarter, watching him come back in, getting to 70 points, while Victor was actually playing pretty well against him and playing pretty good defense and making Joel work, and he was just making shots anyway. Um, and then after the game, everybody was watching the Wolves game to see where Towns would end up. On the, the bench? You mean, uh, on the bench? No, in the locker room. We were watching the game. No, that's where Towns ended up, on the bench oh, for oh, portions yeah. of the last three yeah, minutes well, of a yeah, 62-point game. Yeah, I mean, that was an amazing that was an amazing sequence, the way that game played out in Charlotte. Um, you know, ironically, with him posting, you know, getting the ball with Terry Rogier on his hip uh, at the elbow with five seconds left, and then driving into four guys and, well, and he definitely fouled, but he definitely got fouled in the last two minute report has not come out yet it won't come out for four hours yeah if it doesn't say he got fouled I'll be shocked yeah I mean he definitely got fouled he also should have just turned around and shot the ball over Terry Rogier. and like if you drive into four guys in that spot you're probably not going to get a call but yeah so all of that together it just was a it, it was a very memorable night I was very glad that I went I will never forget the first time I saw Victor play um for reasons I did not expect uh, to be going down there. And look, like you mentioned the MVP race before, Joel was way ahead in the first draw poll. He has been utterly dominant this year. The only question is, is he going to play in 65 games or not and qualify to be MVP? I think if he stays anywhere near the pace he's on over the second half of the season and plays only misses seven games, I think he's going to be MVP of the league. And uh, the thing that's amazing about it Zach is at this point, it really is to me watching him play and I get to see him play a lot. He's basically Kevin Durant plus a hundred pounds at this point, like the way he plays and for as good as his mid range jumper is like every time he shoots the ball from 15 to 20 feet, I don't expect it to hit, to hit rim, let alone miss. And the fact that he has become such an automatic shooter at his size, he's getting to the line, 15, 20 times a game, it feels like. I mean, he's just doing whatever he wants. It's pretty remarkable to see, and it's uh, it's awfully fun to watch like it was last night. And I'll be in, I'll be in Denver on Saturday where Joel is going to play against Nikola Jokic for the first time in several years, I think, in Denver. And um, it should be a lot of fun to watch. Uh, Kevin Durant capped last night with a game-winning, crazy, leaning, tilting, fading, off-balance jumper to uh, with 1.6 seconds left to beat the Bulls. The Suns have won six in a row. They're now fifth in the West at 25-18. and 18. And we're staring at a reality now where even if the Suns hang in at fifth, they will face one of... The Clippers, Nuggets, Thunder, and aforementioned Wolves in what is an absolutely titanic potential first-round matchup. And by the way, not to get sidetracked away from MB, we'll get back to him. Last night's fourth quarter is just an, a perfect storm of everything I've been worried about with Minnesota, which is really not that much. Like, I think Minnesota is really good. But I said last week, I talked about it with John Krasinski a lot. Yeah, it's not it's not Gobert versus small ball lineups. It's nothing about their defense. It's their decision-making on offense. Now, Edwards was sick last night, so let's give that. And he had 11 assists, too. Uh, specifically, Edwards and Towns with the ball in their hands late in games. Conley wasn't there last night as a security blanket to get things going. 
but every shot was horrible. And it was beyond just Towns hunting points, which he was doing in the first four minutes of the fourth quarter, which is fine. Like he had 62 points. I'm not going to like really go crazy over him sort of playing outside the game to get more points. But um, it was it was a mess. And just this the history of this team is like every time something good happens, there's this catastrophe. And last night is their first big, like, uh uh-oh moment. And they have these three easy games coming up. We're like, I want to see them come out unified front, you know, Chris Finch benching towns late in the game. And you can tell me always going offense, defense and blind towns is out of rhythm. Like that's ballsy. There are not a lot of superstar players. Like, Joel Embiid was not going to come out of the game once he went back in the game last night until that was cinched up. Like there are not a lot of guys with 60 something points who are going to get pulled from a close game late. This is the first big test of the Wolves. And I've been saying all year, it's the first time in 20 years that this team will face pressure of expectations now and in the playoffs amped up in the playoffs. And now this is the first moment where you're going to feel that. Now they have three easy games coming up. I want to see him steamroll these teams and then it gets a little harder from here. But let's go back to Joel. Kevin Durant plus 100 pounds. I mean, I like that. And that and and he's reached... Jokic is at this point where you feel his presence every single second of the game, right? Like, it, you, you know where he is. Yeah. Every time he touches the ball, it is an automatic good shot for the Nuggets. Embiid has reached that point where there's not a single possession where you're not... Where is he? What's he doing? And you feel 100% confident every time he touches the ball that the Sixers are going to get a good shot, even if it's just Joel Embiid shooting. I mean, you we can break down the numbers if you want. His post-up efficiency is up. His isolate Only Luka averages more isolations per possession. And his numbers are off the charts. He's averaging over 1.1 points per isolation, which is one of the better marks in the whole NBA. Um, and he's faced every kind of defense. And look, you and I both know... And I think he said, didn't he say something after the game about like, I, the, none of this matters if we don't get to the finals or didn't he have the, I think, feel like he had some I comment. I don't remember if he said that last night, but he's definitely, I mean, he's definitely said over and over again, like Joel's a very aware guy. He, he knows that for as well as he's playing, he, he's as aware as anybody that the one thing he hasn't done is win a title and get out of the second round. And like, he, he knows that he's got to have a deep playoff run for a lot of this stuff too, um, to be different going look, forward. Se- the second round, no matter where they end up, is going to be. I mean, right now it's probably going to be Philadelphia, Milwaukee, and you'd like to have home court in that matchup, no matter which team you are. But that's a war. That's a war, sure is. and and there ain't anything easy about that. And God forbid you're third and you see Miami in the first round. And we know Miami's history against Philly and Miami's not afraid of anybody. Like nothing is guaranteed in the East. And, but look, I, I keep saying this. We have not had a Joel Embiid playoffs yet, a playoffs where he sustains or even comes within 10% of his regular season production level, no matter where that production level is. He's had some great games, some bad games, some series where he was statistically in, eh, but the Sixers were dominant with him on the floor anyway, notably the Raptors series in the Kawhi shot series in 2019. They, as long as they, as they continue to have a team around him that is good enough to be a top four team, they're going to have a Joel Embiid playoffs. It's going to happen. It better happen for his sake and the team's sake. And maybe this is the year. Um, but just like, 
you, you just when when he's got the ball 15 feet from the rim, he can shoot over anybody. He can see the whole floor. And it just, I, I know it, the statistics say he's shooting 53% on long twos, which is Dirk. I mean, that's Dirk. Yep. It feels like 75%. It feels like he just yes. doesn't, it, it feels like he's just reaching up and dropping the ball into the rim. It's crazy. You just never expect him to miss. And look, as it sits right now, I was looking at BPI, our, our basketball power index's projections, just to double check it before I said it. Right now, the Sixers are projected to be the two seed. The Cavs are projected to be the three seed. And the Bucks are projected to be the four seed in the East. Now, we'll see where that all plays out over the next couple of months. But yeah, like, you know, if, if they're sitting there in that situation, then like, yeah, the Sixers better be in the conference finals. You know, they better not lose to anybody but Milwaukee or Boston in the playoffs. And Joel has never been healthy for any of these runs. He'll be the first to say he's had a bunch of bad luck and random stuff happened to him. But at some point, he's got to make a deep run. And if you look at all the great players that we, if you go back through, whether it's Jokic or Giannis or uh, Dirk or any of these guys in recent memory who sort of banged up against the glass ceiling a bunch of times and then finally broke through, that's when all the criticism of their playoff performance or this or that or the other thing all went away, right? Because once you win one, you know, as our buddy Brian likes to say, you never have to say you're sorry once you win one. And at that point, all all the remaining criticisms people have of Joel will go away. But when you look at how he's playing in the regular season and the the dominance he's showing on a nightly basis where he's, you know, he's been getting to 30 points in three quarters most nights during this 19 or 20 game streak of 30 points a game. Um, he's playing at another worldly level. And, you know, I think the synergy with Nick Nurse has been really good. The synergy with Tyrese Maxey has been really good. And, you know, the Sixers need to make moves over the next three weeks. They're not good enough as of right now. But coming into the season, you would have thought, hey, they need to go add stars or a star. Now, I think they just need to add a couple of quality role players to deepen their rotation. And I think they've got a puncher's chance of beating Boston. And they're right there with Milwaukee. And like I think they've got that kind of opportunity. And a lot of that's because Joel Embiid is playing at a truly dominant level. He has a little bit of... there. It's almost Tracy McGrady-like where, in, in an unfair way, I feel like I hear from people around the league a lot where it looks so easy that people are like, is he even like, does he even have to try? Like, like people how used to say about that, that about McGrady, like it's just so easy for him to get 30. Is he really pouring his heart into the game? And I thought that was always unfair to T-Mac and like Joel, it's just, it's, he, you look up, he has 24 points after the first quarter. It's like, has he broken a sweat? And yes, of course he's broken a sweat because he's anchoring the defense. He's running the floor. Um, you, you mentioned upgrades. Let's talk about that. Um, you know, I said last week, internally, I think the conversation the Sixers are having is, holy, holy crap. Just beat Denver. This guy just scores 40 every goddamn game. Are we, are we almost good enough as is? Like, do, like how much do we really need to add? And, um, you know. We need to add. Well, I, I but we'll get there. I, they're starting five. You know, we know who three three of their their three leading scorers are going to be Maxi, Embiid, and Harris. I honestly like 
Batum to me is borderline untouchable because the guy just throws one incredible entry pass to Embiid after another. And if you watch his post-ups from last night, or really any game, but just zero in on last night, particularly his early post-ups early in the clock, Batum is the entry passer on damn near all of them to the point that Maxi and Embiid will run a pick and roll with Maxi going to his right, dribbling to the right wing. Embiid will roll into post-up position. And by design, Batum will track behind Maxi to the top of the arc as a release valve just to catch Maxi's pass and make the entry pass to Embiid. I'm like not trading Batum. <laughs> like he might he's like almost untouchable. But Batum and Melton as your fourth and fifth starters. Like you'd like and then off the bench you have Ubre, Beverly, Paul Reed, all these guys. You like one or two, like you said, I think two more guys is in play for them. And I don't know who those guys are, but they have all this cap space this offseason. They can get like one good guy on an expiring and one good guy who makes $15 million next year and still have max cap space. The other thing about that cap space is between Kawhi and Ananobi and Siakam and maybe Drew Holiday, they've watched one potential target after another in this coming free agency class not go off the board, but become less likely to be on the board, which it doesn't just leave them at this player. But I think their dream player is probably Paul George, who still has not signed his extension with the Clippers, if he's going to sign one. That, you know, we'll see if that ever becomes in play for them. Maybe I would guess that it it doesn't. I would guess that Paul George signs an extension, but that's just a blind guess. But it makes me prioritize that cap space a little bit less today than I did four months ago. Uh Like, but what kinds of players are we talking about with Philly? Are we talking like your Bruce Brown types? Are we like, who are we talking about? Who do you have in mind? I think if you look at Nick Batum and the impact Nick Batum has had, I think you look at exactly the kind of player that the Sixers need to get, which is more role players and in particular, I think more smart role players because Nick Batum has been such a connector for them at both ends of the court. They need a couple more guys like that. Bruce Brown is sort of the obvious kind of example, right? Um, Ice Jones in Washington is another kind of example, like guys that they can get for second round picks in expiring contracts, they have a lot of second round picks. They can save their first for later and they can go get guys that can fill in their rotation and can give them some depth because their starting five is really good. But this team only really has two guys that can dribble in Tyrese and sort of Joel. So whenever Joel, whenever Tyrese goes off the court and he's playing more minutes than anybody in the league, I think so still it's basically Joel with a bunch of guys who are spot up shooters around him who can't really handle the ball, which is not. It, that's not really going to work in the playoffs. I, I can hear Sixers fans saying that's unfair to DeAnthony Melton, who is kind of a hybrid guard, and it's unfair to Tobias Harris, who's been a 20-point scorer in the NBA. And I think what you're saying is both those guys can handle the ball, but like, do I trust them, eight on the shot clock, run a pick and roll against the Boston Celtics and get a good shot? I'm not sure that I trust them quite enough. They just need another ball handling guard. It's not anything about D'Anthony. I mean, I think D'Anthony Melton and Tobias Harris are really good. They're the they're two guys who initiate offense for them for the most part are Tyrese Maxey and Joel Embiid. They just need another guy who can do that. Um so and you mentioned they, you mentioned Batum, the connector, the high IQ, the smart role player type. Kelly Oubre is almost a direct contrast to Nick Batum. Well, Kelly Oubre's been fantastic for them. Mm-hmm. Um and he's put in a lot of effort on defense. 
there's just an element of wildness with him that I'm like, do I really trust this guy in the highest profile moments? And maybe you have no choice and maybe he'll still, he's averaged 20 points a game in the NBA, but they're almost like antitheses of each other. Yes. I mean, and so they, they just need to get deeper. They need to get deeper and add a couple, uh, add a couple solid pieces. And like I said, I think they can add those pieces to me. The whole summer cap space thing is a pipe dream. I don't, if they sit around and wait for that, Maybe I'll end up looking foolish if they end up with Paul George. But the guys that have gone off the board, I think that would be silly to sit around and hope for some star to show up this summer, especially when they can add guys with a handful of second-round picks, make themselves meaningfully deeper for this run this year, and then still starting on, I don't know if you, I mean, I don't know if you guys talked about this with Bobby, but they would, they have, they can have five tradable first-round picks this summer. So, like, you can still, if you may, and also if you make these trades to add players, you potentially could keep going forward. You get your bird rights back for DeAnthony Melton, Tobias Harris, and all these guys who you would have to lose to sign a star player. And then the one thing that Joel talks about all the time, data I sit down with him last month, is how if you look at Denver in particular, Denver has these guys that have been together for a long time and played together for years. And you look at Philly, and it's just been a rotating cast of characters year after year after year. I think there'd be some real value in finding some guys who you would want to retain, who you could then have this core of seven or eight guys go play together for a couple of years and start to build some of that longer term chemistry that the Sixers just never have because they've had this rotating cast of guys in and out. And, you know, now it looks like finally they've got a guy in Tyrese Maxey who's going to be the long term guy with Joel and Philly, but going from Ben Simmons to Jimmy Butler to James Harden to all the other guys that have come in and out. It's just never really, um, you know, they've never had that same kind of synergy that these other teams have. So I think Daryl Morey would say, if he, if he could speak frankly, which Frank, which he usually does, he to almost to his say, he usually, it's, it's rare that he does it, um, that they are in a position where they might be able to eat, have their cake and eat it too. Um, where we can get a couple of guys and still have cap space this summer. And I think we'd also say there are other ways for us to use cap space rather than just in free agency straight signings. What I would also say about Daryl Morey is I will never forget interviewing him in the middle of the 2017 finals when I was doing a story on the idea that teams would wait out the Warriors with Durant, that the Warriors were just unbeatable and teams would have to sort of put off their splashy moves. And he said to me on the record, I think we've got something up our sleeves. Like we're not, we, the Houston Rockets at the time, are not waiting out the Warriors. We're going to go after the Warriors and I think we have a plan. And I had no goddamn idea what he was talking about. And three weeks later, they signed and traded for Chris Paul, or they Chris Paul opted in, or whatever it was. Yep. They ended up yep. trading for Chris Paul. Which, yep. if you had given me seventy-five guesses of what was up Daryl Morey's sleeve, I would not have said, "Oh, they'll get Chris Paul from the Lob City Clippers." So I've yep. learned never to underestimate what that dude can do. Um, but I'm with you, and I've said this all year, ever since it was clear Maxie's an All Star, and he is an All Star. Mm-hmm. If I'm weighing future present. I'm leaning almost all the way to now. I got to go almost all in to win this year. The dude is too good. Maxie's too good. Embiid is at the right place in his career. The playoff failures are what they are. I would be super aggressive.
you have a ballot this year. If you had to vote rookie of the year right now at the halfway point, who would you vote for? Uh, I think Chet is the clear winner as of today. So I've had Chet all season long. And it's the weirdest rookie of the year race. I don't think there's ever been a race like this where you could, if you wanted to, make a statistical argument for either player. If you wanted to, right? You like Wemby's sure. got the raw stats, Chet's got the efficiency stats. I just don't remember a year like this when you have statistically guys both putting up big numbers. One, obviously he had a red shirt season, but he walks into a great team full of ball handlers who can set him up, including an MVP candidate. And another guy on a horrible team, bereft of ball handlers who can set him up until surprise, 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 Trey Jones starting has helped. Who could have ever anticipated that? And the Spurs are, you know, where are the Spurs? Now? I don't know. They have not won very many games. I don't understand. They are 8-35, and 35, last in the West. The Thunder are 29-13. and 13. So the Spurs are 17 and a half games or something behind the Thunder. I don't know what you do with that because... Like, I think Wembenyama is the best player of the two, short-term, long-term, medium-term. The team context is just universes apart. Wembenyama is doing everything for San Antonio. But their games ultimately don't matter. Like, at some point, the stakes matter to me as a voter, this year a non-voter, but just a thinker. Um, Like, Oklahoma City's games are important. When they lose two games in a row in Los Angeles... They face scrutiny internally and externally about, oh, is this the first big roadblock for the Oklahoma City Thunder? How do they respond? And they respond by winning at Utah, winning at Minnesota. The Spurs face no they, they could lose 11 games in a row. No one cares. There's no scrutiny. There's no questions. And at some point, that begins to matter. I think Wemby has opened up the window a little bit where this could become a competitive race. I still think I would lean Chet over Wemby, but I think it's interesting. I think it's pretty easy. The stats are... Basically the same counting wise. Victor's a little bit better. The efficiency stats are vastly in Chet's favor. And the winning component, like Chet is a rookie. I mean, whatever, whatever you want to argue he's in his second year or not, for voting purposes, he's a rookie. And he's contributing to winning in a way we basically never see rookies do. And so you put that together to me, it's not very close. I do think there's an interesting thought exercise to do where like if you squeezed both teams toward 500 quality rosters, how much does that efficiency gap shrink along with the records sure. squeezing? Um, and but obviously that's not, you know, a real thing. And but they've both been outstanding uh, and lived up to the hype completely. The Wembenyama is like it's just unbelievable what this guy's doing every night. Uh, let's go back to the East. You mentioned our BPI projections, which I had not checked, have the Cavs in third and the Bucks finishing in fourth. The reason for that is that the Bucks have played the easiest schedule in the NBA so far. They are 30 and 13. The Cavs are 26 and 15. Um, I want to talk about the Cavs, who blew the doors off Orlando last night. They are 13 and 3 in their last 16 games without Darius Garland and without Evan Mobley. For the season, they are 15th in offense and very quietly up to third in defense. Jared Allen is, this is the best five weeks of Jared Allen's NBA career. This is, he's playing better than he did when he made the All-Star team on both yep. ends of the floor. In that 13-3 and three stretch, now it's been against an easy schedule. 
They caught a couple of, of injury absence breaks. They got the Bucks without Giannis. They got the Magic on a back-to-back. They got the Mavs without Kyrie. Whatever. 13-3 is 13-3 in the NBA. They're sixth in offense, first in defense. They have somehow, despite um, the absence of their starting power forward, Evan Mobley, transformed into the best rebounding team in the NBA. They were an average rebounding team. And in this 16-game stretch, they're first in defensive rebounding and second in offensive rebounding. They are blowing the doors off everybody with three-point shooting. For the season, they've taken like the seventh most threes in the league, I think, per per as a share of shot attempts. In this 16-game stretch, 44% of their shots have been threes. 44%. That's almost like, whoa, is that too many? Like, how are they taking that many shots? But it's working for them. And the question is going to be, where does that end up when Mobley comes back? Obviously, their three-point attempts will go down. Garland weirdly doesn't take a lot of threes, and their threes have been depressed with Garland on the floor. They've got to find a way to live in between offensively where they were before the injuries and where they are now with the injuries. We should note that one of the reasons they have transformed into a monstrous rebounding team is that they've been playing Tristan Thompson. Tristan Thompson remains an incredible offensive rebounder, um, like four guys have to box him out on every possession and the refs have decided that Tristan Thompson can essentially play football under the rim and just throw people around and they're not going to call anything, which is great for the Cavs. He just got suspended today for 25 games for violating the league's uh, drug policy. It's a lot of games. We don't really know a lot of information as of now. I can't pronounce the names of the drugs that he supposedly took. I assume they're PEDs. I have not had time to Google this happened yeah, right as I, we're doing I left this. Them, I left them up there. They're various... They're various performance-enhancing drugs. So now they, I guess, need a backup center. Damian Jones is the third center on the roster. He essentially doesn't play. But, I mean, this is... These dudes got hurt, and the national narrative was, who's trading for Donovan Mitchell? The Cavs were apoplectic that this was the national narrative. I mean, they were, like, furious behind closed doors that this was the story people were choosing to cover. And they have, frankly, been vindicated by this stretch. What have you seen from them... And, you know, it's interesting because this three-point shooting, they wanted to play with pace. They wanted to shoot more threes. They wanted to pass more. Their assist rate's up. J.B. Pickerstaff talked all about that in the regular season. It has now come to fruition. I thought they were a disaster. I mean, I didn't think they were. They were a disaster in the playoffs. I thought he was outcoached badly by Tom Thibodeau in the first round of the playoffs. I just... I- I'm very interested to see how they look when they when they get their guys back. What do you, what do you what have you learned about them, and what are you going to be looking for when they get Mobley and Garland back? I mean, I think we've already learned it, which is that uh, I think you have to have real questions about the viability of Evan Mobley and Jared Allen as a pairing going forward. And frankly, the Cavs have been better this year when only Jared Allen has played compared to when only Evan Mobley has played. And I think, I mean, to me, Evan Mobley's been one of the more disappointing players in the league this year before he got hurt. He has not improved on offense at all. I disagree with the masses on how good he is as a defensive player. Like, I thought that Jared Allen was just better than him last year. I think he's a good, very good defensive player, but not one of the three or four best in the league. Um, And I, I think there's, I think when you look at Cleveland, and the viability of them going forward. I mean, obviously the Donovan Mitchell situation is a whole other part of it, but just looking at Evan Mobley, if you're a non-shooting four, which is what Evan Mobley is, that's probably the least valuable player 
in the league in terms of positional archetype. And Evan Mobley struggled at center this year before Jared Allen came back when he was hurt at the beginning of the year. The Cavs struggled. And he's shown no growth as a shooter from the perimeter. So that that to me is the thing to watch with Cleveland is what do they look like when he comes back? Because he is a very good player, but like you said, they have been playing a certain style that's going to go in the other way. And I think you got to look at that pairing long-term and can it work? And if it can't, that's sort of the bedrock of what Cleveland's been doing when they've had success. And I think there's real questions about whether that's a viable path for them moving forward. The fact that they've maintained or had the number one defense without Evan Mobley is is interesting. I'm not sure it's anything more than interesting, but it's interesting. And their rebounding, I think, partly is because, you know, they're playing just they don't play a point guard now. Donovan Mitchell is their point guard. They play bigger guys all over the place. Dean Wade's a good rebounder. Okoro, on and on. Um I I, I would you said long term, and I think that's the key. They're kind of frozen in place until they get clarity on Donovan Mitchell. They can't, mm-hmm. like, you might want to put Evan Mobley into the trade machine or Darius Garland into the trade machine. You can't do that until they have long-term clarity on the guy who's been the best player on their team. And he has been just outstanding uh, yep. ever since they got him. I had him first-team All-NBA this year, and he's been, you know, I don't, I'm don't, i not going to have him first-team All-NBA this year, but he's been about damn near as good this year as he was last year. The guard competition is just, is just better. But... Again, this it's sixteen games is not that long. It's long, but it's not that long. It's also and been a ske- very soft schedule. Set schedule has been very soft in that stretch, so I wouldn't overreact. But it is interesting, and it's the Donovan Mitchell, Jared Allen shooting around them, no other stars. That's clean. Like that's easy. You can plop that into a regular season, and it's a clear hierarchy system that works. Two star guards and two non-shooting bigs has more quote-unquote talent, but it's not as clean. It's not as tidy. It's not as just plug and play. And that's why I think they need to meet somewhere in the middle because as fun as this is, you do have to hit a certain level of raw talent to really make noise in the playoffs when teams are... Like Sam Merrill is not going to be as open in the playoffs. We see this with shooters all the time. It's not going to be as easy. And they're going to have to problem solve that. But we should talk about Sam Merrill who's shooting 43% on threes. I looked this up yesterday. He's taking 13.1 threes per 36 minutes. 13.1. Tim Bontemps, do you know where that would rank all time among players who had played at least 500 minutes in a season? I'm going to guess first. Second. Steph Curry took 13.4 in the 2021 season. Then it would be Sam Merrill. Then it would be James Harden at 12.9 in the 2019-18-19 season. Pretty good I company. Mean, he, he is getting them up. He got in the Orlando game last night on an inbounds play, and he shot a three off the inbounds pass. Like, it was, he was in the game for four seconds, and he shot a three. He has very good chemistry with Donovan Mitchell. Like, he screens for Donovan Mitchell and flares out for threes. He's a legit player that I think, even when they get healthy, Karis LeVert was out last night. They're going to have to find minutes for him. I think that the way they've been playing is really fun. They deserve a lot of credit for staying afloat. And Jared Allen, I mean, he's been a monster on both ends of the floor. I don't think he's quite going to make my 12-man all-star roster, but he's he's making a case. Yeah, he's been really good. And yeah, like, I mean, I think over the last couple of years, he's been the better of their two 
bigs defensively. Like, for as good as Evan Mobley is defensively, like, I think Jared Allen's been more impactful for them in large part because I think he's proven that he's more reliable option at the five, which is a much more important defensive position. So he's played great. The combo with him and Donovan Mitchell has played great. They're bombing a lot of threes. They survived some rocky patches earlier in the year and stabilized themselves. And, I mean, when Garland and Mobley got hurt, you know, there was, I was certainly among plenty of people wondering, well, how is this year going to go for the Cavs now? Those guys are basically going to be hurt till the trade deadline. They're going to have to start looking at going a totally different direction with their team. And instead, they've gone the other way. They've gotten back over 500. They're right in the mix for a top four seed in the East. And, you know, I mean, for a Cavs franchise that I think has won one playoff series in the last 30 years without LeBron, or maybe has won zero in the last 30 years without LeBron. Um, you know, to make to make the playoffs and have a chance to win a round or two is a is a pretty significant thing, and they've given themselves a chance to do that again. I said before the season, if they lose in the first round, it's a disappointment. It's, I still think that's true, despite the fact that the East looks a little even better than we thought it would be. I wonder if they're looking at the standings. If they're looking at Woj's report last week that Mitchell Robinson is on track to perhaps come back at some point in the season. Looking at the OGN and OB trade, and like I said with Bobby, I don't think the Knicks are done trading. I don't think they're going to do anything big, but I think they're going to try to fortify their bench at least. Bench has yep. been a little little rickety um, since quickly, and Barrett particularly quickly went out the door. It's like, man, are we going to have to face these guys again? That would be a fun rematch. I mean, it was stylistically incredibly ugly, but it would be a fun gut check test for the Cavs to have another shot at the team that just beat the hell out of them physically last season. Certainly would be. Step one, by the way, to finding this middle path is just the minute staggering has to be for the short term, i.e. the rest of the season, as strict as you can possibly make it between the two bigs and maybe even the two guards. Like just split them up the way the Rockets split up Chris Paul and James Harden way back when. Um, by the way, the Cavs are, um, I believe, number two overall in field goal percentage allowed at the rim. I think they were number one last year. That's Jared Allen. I mean, the guy's challenging every shot. More aggressive offensively lately than ever. Just an awesome job by the Cavs. George Yang, really good acquisition. Struess has lived up to his contract. He's been really good. Um, even Isaac Okoro, like every other game, you're like, oh, God, he's passing up corner threes over and over again. And then some games he looks pretty good. All right. You may have noticed an outfit change here at Low Post Podcast HQ because the second part, or the third part, I guess, of this discussion for seeds two and three in the Eastern Conference is about the Milwaukee Bucks. Tim and I talked all about the Milwaukee Bucks and their assorted good things and problems about, I don't know, a few hours ago. And then Adrian Griffin got fired. Holy smokes, the 30 and 13 Milwaukee Bucks have fired their head coach, according to Adrian Wojnarowski. Um, Doc Rivers... Currently at ESPN, that's an interesting plot twist, is a candidate for that job. Um, Tim, I think e even if you looked at the Bucks through a glass half full perspective, I think you kind of know it when you see it, when a team is playing its potential, when everything is sort of clicking in place, when everything is flowing the way it should be. And you and I have talked about the Bucks a few times this year. We haven't quite gotten that feeling for any consistent period of time. This team is number two in offense. That's great. Even so, they've played the easiest schedule in the NBA by far. They face Cleveland 
tomorrow in the start of two straight against them. They've got Denver twice coming up, Minnesota twice, the Pelicans, the Jazz, the Mavs, just a murderer's row of teams coming up. Uh, and we've talked about how, like, where is the Dame Giannis pick and roll? There's been more of it lately, but, like, what what is the weird hesitancy to do that? And more than anything else, they're 22nd in defense. And, look, they're not that far from, like, 17th, 18th in t- t- territory. where They're, like, half a point from territory. where are like, oh, they're almost average. But, again, easiest schedule in the league. Transition defense has been a complete cluster you know what the entire season they just could never get matched up correctly they can never get back on defense that's partly on the players but it's also like you just and yes when they traded um drew holiday for damian lillard and decided we're just riding with a damian lillard malik beasley one two in the backcourt uh on a team that has depended on our guards getting over screens to fortify our drop back defense. You knew they were going to take a hit and and defensively and they have taken a hit defensively, but just watching this team all year on defense, you just never felt like I know what they stand for. I know what they're about. And that goes back to the beginning of the season when Adrian Griffin was like, "We're importing my helter skelter Toronto Raptors defense here in Milwaukee. Brook Lopez, we want you blitzing, we want you trapping." And what happened? Five, six, seven games in, the players went to him and said, yo, this is not how we do it here. We've had a lot of success playing a much more conservative style. Can we just can we just do that? That was like red flag number two. Red flag number one was Terry Stott's veteran mentor walking out the door before the season even started after a little dust-up at a shoot-around that the Athletic reported on in some detail. Not just a dust-up, nothing big, but enough of an awkward situation that Terry Stotts was like, you know what? I've got paid a lot of money. I'm 60, whatever years old. Like, I don't need I don't need to deal with this. And look, Tim, you know as well as I do, the three finalists for this job were Adrian Griffin, Nick Nurse, who had some backing within the organization, now coaches the Philadelphia 76ers and is doing a bang-up job, and Kenny Atkinson, who is still in Golden State. So the road's not taken are quite interesting. But this is just, they've their record is good. You can squint and see like they're plus 16 per 100 possessions with a great offensive rating and a great defensive rating with their four best players on the floor. That's great. But there's been enough smoke simmering from Giannis saying we got to be coached better. I need the equipment manager to wash my jersey better. To Stotts, to the changing defensive scheme, to some of the body language, Giannis at the scorer's table. Where... I was going to say, I don't mean to cut you off. Go. I was, I was, no, I was going to say, the moment you knew this was doomed was the moment at the scorer's table in Boston. When Adrian Griffin, I was at the game. It was the night before Thanksgiving. Giannis comes out of, gets taken out of the game, was very clearly upset, sat at the scorer's table, and essentially checked himself back in the game. Like, I'm not saying that he should have been, Adrian Griffin should have been fired then, but to show up the new coach a month into his tenure, when there's already a lot of noise around the team, it was very obvious at that moment who was in charge. And it just did not feel like this was ultimately going to work out in the long term for Milwaukee from that point forward. To me, I haven't seen that in person and sort of seeing the way that played out, 
seeing the way that played out. I'm surprised this happened right now, that they're 30 and 13 and they have the second best record in the league, the schedule and defense and other stuff aside. But it's not like anyone's sitting here saying, we can't believe the Bucs fired Adrian Griffin from an overall standpoint. Because if you've watched this team, as we talked about earlier, they have a lot of problems. They're not all because of the coach. They have structural flaws in the team, in part because of the trade, in part because of age that they have to try to fix. But the coaching wasn't helping, and that's why this has happened. And I, I like, if you, you just never had the sense that the players had, like, a great deal of belief in what they were trying to execute on the floor. And you can look at their defensive numbers and say they're kind of becoming more Bud-esque as the season goes on. Like after a really strange start where they were trying different things, they are sixth in free throws allowed, so they don't foul. They're eighth in defensive rebounding. That's a Bud tent pull. Now they would be first or second under Bud. They would never give up offensive rebounds, but eighth is trending the right way. Um, and, you know, the first order of business for for the new coaches we can't be the worst transition defense in the NBA. Like that, that alone is worth like four spots in the defensive rankings. Just clean mm-hmm. that up. And you can't pin that all on Adrian Griffin, but swapping out Drew Holiday, one of the best defensive guards in the league, for Damian Lillard, who is not that, shouldn't that's, like. That's one way to put it. <laughs> shouldn't, but that shouldn't like. If you tell me that that really hurts your half court defense, like Dame's getting hung up on screens and guards are walking into easy pull up jumpers, and by the way, teams are roasting the Bucks from mid range, like that, I get. That shouldn't make that shouldn't like transform us into the worst transition defensive team in the league. There were just yeah. too many nights where this team didn't seem to have any sort of coherence to it, changing ends, and more than that, like you knew with Bud. And I'm not like the playoffs last year were a disaster. There's just no sugarcoating it. The, the clock management, the timeout management, all that. But you knew what they stood for. And what they stood for was we're going to protect the basket at all costs. That means yep. Giannis is going to be close to the basket a lot, blocking shots, protecting the rim. This year, they're like a little too pressurized for my taste. Like, I don't necessarily, like, I, I missed the days when they would face a TJ McConnell, for instance, and say, we're going under every screen. We're going to go 15 feet under every screens and dare you to beat us with jump shots. Now it's like sometimes they're pressing and just giving up these long drives to the basket. Giannis is too far from the. They just don't appear to have any sort of core defensive bedrock. And all I'm the not stuff sure. that they had, all the stuff that they had with Mike Budenholzer, right? Like when you when you said it earlier, like to me, it sum, you sum it up by saying, what were the Bucks really about from a stylistic standpoint, right? For better or worse, and most of the time better, because, yes, I mean, I've been very critical of Mike Budenholzer for some issues in the playoffs um, in terms of, you know, stylistic adjustments and lack of adjustments at times. But what you could never argue was that you knew exactly what the Bucks were about, right? You had a very clear idea of what they were trying to do at both ends of the court all the time. And it was an incredibly successful model. And... From the beginning of the season, like you said, from the moment all this came together, and it should also be noted, whatever plans Adrian Griffin had got thrown out the door the day training camp started because they traded for Dame Lillard on the eve of training camp, right? Which only added several layers of complexity 
to an already complex situation for a first-time head coach. But you, the the one core thing you could say about this team all year was that you weren't really sure what they were doing from day to day because they just they just never felt solid up to and including another time on our air when Ryan Rucco was doing the halftime interview with Adrian Griffin a few games into the season when they're playing the Knicks in the first in-season tournament game. And he admitted on national TV that the players came to him and begged him to go back to the bud system. And that's what they were doing. So like he deserves credit for like not being so didactic about his way that it had to be his way. You mentioned the Dame trade happening sort of as he's taking the job. You know, people have already started making the David Black comparison, you know, the, the quick firing of a winning, a winning, a coach with a winning record and David Black and, to me, it's a little apples to oranges. David Blatt was hired to coach a young, rebuilding Cleveland Cavaliers team that then gets LeBron and Kevin Love, and like all of a sudden, it's a total 180 to a different kind of team. Like the Bucks were a, wanted to be and considered themselves to be a championship contender before the Damian Lillard trade. It's not like Damian Lillard came and they were all of a sudden doing a 180. They were already really, really good. And that trade just sort of changed them functionally. But even like offensively, from the first game of the season on this podcast, on TV, elsewhere, even my first 10 things column of the year, it's like, why are they running like eight Dame Giannis pick and rolls a game? Like we all thought that was just a no well, the, e- the easiest thing to do is just put those guys in a two-man game. Well, that would require Giannis to want to set screens, which he That's doesn't part really want to do. When I've talked about that too, like he's got to buy into that. And that's part of the new coach's job too, I guess, right? Well, that is the, that is to me the number one job of the new coach is to get him and Dame bought into, well, I mean, Dame to a lesser extent, but Giannis bought into doing that. Because for the last couple of years, that's not something Giannis has wanted to do, right? And part of the reason I was down on the trade from the beginning was logically, you look at the trade, you bring in Dame, you say, hey, Dame Giannis pick and roll unbelievable weapon, right? You've got Dame Lillard, incredible late game shot maker. Bucks have sometimes struggled late in games. Give him the ball, get out of the way, let Dame time happen, right? Except Giannis doesn't really want to just stand and watch that. He's going to want to have the ball. He's not going to want to just set screens and watch Dame cook, right? And like, as we've seen over the course of the year, Dame has certainly hit some big shots in those moments. They've also not really run a lot of pick and rolls. They've not done a lot of this stuff. Giannis has had the ball a lot. As Giannis should, he might be the best player on the planet. But, like, that is going to be the job. Whoever they hire to be the coach and thought it was noteworthy, Adrian on NBA Today immediately said they're going to look for a veteran experienced coach. Doc Rivers has come up. Certainly is a championship winning coach. Ton of experience with big-name players. Like, makes a lot of sense. Uh, even before he set aside him playing college ball at Marquette and his Nick jersey being in the rafters at the arena. Um, whoever the coach is, is going to have to get buy-in on all these various things. Because when you've watched the Bucks this year, I've said this a couple to a couple people privately, they've reminded me of the 2019 Celtics, a team that had a ton of talent. And all year long, people kept saying to me, this is going to come together. They got so much talent. How are they not going to win? And it just felt like half a degree off or half a turn off the whole time. Just was never, everybody wasn't quite on the same page ever. And since then, you've seen a lot of people, Gordon Hayward just talked about it recently. You've seen a lot of guys talk about that season. This Bucks team has felt like the same thing. 
And whoever they bring in, they've now got a 40-game sprint and then the playoffs to try to fix that. Well, it's, it's going to be hard to do. The comp is interesting, but the way you described it, just a few degrees off. Like, you can feel that when you watch them play. Even on nights when they look good, sometimes it feels like they're almost overthinking or fighting themselves a little bit. And there has been a little more Dame Giannis pick and roll lately. And yeah, some of that is on Giannis. Like, you got to be willing to set screens and roll. And you're going to, by the way, you're going to rim run into 25 points a game just by doing that. But it's not the most glamorous thing in the world. Um, and look, big picture, they have played quite well with their best guys on the floor. Yep. Middleton is ramping up his minutes load. He's played a couple back-to-backs. What did you say the number was earlier, Zach? Was it, was it plus 16? Plus 16 per 100 guys? possessions with Middleton, Lillard, Giannis, and Lopez on the floor. Elite offensive rating, elite defensive rating. Yeah, I mean, that's, if you're making the Pro Bucks case, like, that's, that's the it. case. But that's and that's under a coach who just got fired. By the way, their starters right. are their starters have the same net rating, um, and you and and yet you it just something didn't feel quite right. Part of it is like obviously if if those four guys are playing super well together at that level, other lineups are not functioning that well. And you know we've seen Jay Crowder; he's just coming back from injury. They're going to need him. Pat Connaughton quietly turning into like an 11 minutes a game guy is alarming to me. I had him penciled in as a starter in like August yep. over Malik Beasley. By me way, Malik too. I think Beasley. that's been an under, I think that's been an underrated part of their season that he's just not been good because uh, they need, they, especially with the moves that they've made, no Grayson Allen, right? Like they needed Pat Connaughton to be a good player for them. And he just has not been. The best thing he does for them is set screens for Giannis in inverted pick and roll, something I thought they would have Damian Lillard do. And again, I don't know if Damian Lillard just doesn't want to do that, but like if like that I've been I think there's been like ten all year Damian Lillard yep. screening for Giannis. Um and Malik Beasley, by the way, chill out with the with the like, you know, podcast bravado about, you know, wait till the Pacers see us in the playoffs. Yeah, the Pacers just whipped your ass four times in a row, man. Like, let's let's go easy on that one. But do I do appreciate your zeal to get into the three-point shootout. You deserve it uh, and, and, and all that. Um, Andre Jackson Jr. is interesting. I like him in the dunker spot. Good offensive rebounder, good cutter. Has shot okay on threes, but on very teensy, teensy volume. Guys like that we'll see in the playoffs. Beauchamp falling out of the rotation is a little problematic to me. I had hopes for him. Campaign is not necessarily someone I want to have playing heavy minutes. Um, but through it all, they are the second-best offense in the league, almost first. But we're just going to have to see how it holds up um, as the schedule toughens. But the defense has just kind of been a little all over the place. And we've talked about this before. If you look at sort of – they're strong and weak points on defense and particularly their weak points and say, okay, what's fixable and what's not right. I think their rim protection, which has been just so, so this year, this is a team that was rim force field just across the board. Their average in shots at the rim and shooting percentage at the rim. They, they should be better than that. And I think they can be jump shooting opponents have been pretty like pretty cold from three, actually hot from mid range, cold from three. Let's call that a wash. Not much to do with that. Defense rebounding trending up. The weakest spot is they're thirtieth in forcing turnovers, dead last. That feels kind of baked into who this team is. They're small. They're not super athletic on the perimeter. They don't get into your jersey. They're not handsy. 
and their big guys are drop back rim protector guys. And like, it sounds like a dumb thing, but being last in turnovers means the other team's going to get a shot every single possession. Like that's, and, and I don't know that that's super fixable. And the point of attack defense just is what it is. I would dial it back and make it more conservative when the opportunity presents itself. But again, some teams with really good shooting guards, with big wings, with guys who can pull up for three off the dribble, like that's not going to be an option. And I just, you know, Dame Lillard, Malik Beasley, Chris Middleton is your one, two, and three is what it is, even with Middleton playing better. Um, Boy, can you imagine if we got a Doc Rivers against the Sixers in the second round of the playoffs, a Bucks sixers series. As you mentioned before, the Cavs are going to have something to say about that. The Knicks might like that competition for two, three, hey, four, or, five. or him or him against the Celtics. Either way, like, Oof. I mean, the Bucks and Celtics have been, you know, really one of the big rivalries of the past several years. They played a ton of playoff games. They've had a ton of huge moments in the playoffs. Now, you've, now you have Doc Rivers potentially coaching them. You, you, you know, this, like it, there's a lot of, It'd be a lot of pretty amazing storylines if this happened. And by the way, this is not this. I want to be clear for the aggregators is not me reporting anything. I thought it was interesting when the Bucks announced officially the news Adrian reported that they changed coaches. John Horst, the GM of the team, is not going to talk to the media until tomorrow at 515 p.m. Central Time. Tomorrow being Wednesday. If you're going to fire the coach and wait 26 hours to speak to the media, that would seem to lead me to believe that when he sits down to speak to the media, they will have a new head coach. I don't think that means Joe Prunty, the interim head coach, will not be coaching the game in Cleveland tomorrow or against Cleveland tomorrow. But it would seem to me if you're going to take that long to address the media about why you did this, you would also be saying... By the way, here's who we've hired to replace Adrian Griffin. So I will be interested to see if that happens that quickly, because certainly when you're doing this change in the middle of the season, you're going into a very difficult part of the schedule. Like you got to get this going as quick as possible. And generally, I think you would also agree, Zach, if you make a decision like this at game 43, you have a pretty good idea what you're going to do and you get it done. And it's not like we're going to exhaustively take a week to figure out what we're going to do. And to further the Blatt miscomparisons, Ty Lue was sitting there waiting as a trusted internal candidate on that Cleveland team who has since become a championship-level head coach. Kenny Atkinson still technically potentially available. You know, he almost took the Charlotte job yep. a couple years ago. Um, and David again, Millen is of- out there as, an, as a guy who's you know been to, deep in the playoffs, has won a ton of games, uh, respected head coach, worked with Joe Prunty uh, in Atlanta. Uh, was they, that was you know he was the guy who just led the took over midseason and led the Hawks to the conference finals a couple of years ago. So it's another guy with some pedigree who's out there. But you know Doc and, Doc going back there from a story standpoint as the guy who's the star at Marquette, who's from Chicago, having coached the Sixers, having coached the Celtics, the way last season ended, as close as they were to winning that series. That would be a pretty fun story if Doc ends up coaching the Bucks. Well, and look, there were reports last week that the Bucks had asked the Hawks about DeJounte Murray. And I, I asked for a lot of things I got no shot at getting. But it that looks a little different in the light of day today in terms of 
the urgency of this team feels to like do something that something doesn't feel right. And well, John Horst was... has been John Horst has been incredibly aggressive in season. He traded four second round picks for Nico Mirotic. He traded a bunch of I think four or five for Jay Crowder. They've typically made a lot of moves in season to try to make the team better. And obviously, it's one thing to fire the coach, but this is in line with how they have operated under his leadership of the franchise with Giannis on the team, which is we are trying to go for it every year. And this is the definition of going for it when you fire your coach when you're 30 and 13 because you don't like where your team is headed and you've got, you know, you've got 39 games left to see what it looks like before a pretty pivotal playoffs. And this is reflective of the fact that this was the, in in a lot of ways, easiest move, most realistic move to make because they're out essentially every first round pick and every second round pick they have of their own through 2030. They have one, they have one, they have one good second and they've got Portland. some swaps. Like if back in the summer, you saw Phoenix collect some second round picks by trading swaps of prior traded first round picks. That's basically what the Bucks can do. They could say, hey, we've traded these picks. We could swap you whatever is left over, and they have this one Portland second, which and some mediocre to bad salary. So like that's that's I'm sure they'll be aggressive with it, but there's only so far that's realistically going to get you. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that I feel like I know the answer to based on what you've already said about it, but it is interesting to think about. Would you would you do the Dame trade over again? If you could, the Dame for Holiday trade, would you just take, if you could go back in time and just not do it as the Milwaukee Bucks? I understand that that's a facile way of framing yeah. it. Like, it's not just an either or black and white situation. Like, you could not do the trade and then do other trades, but would you just undo it if you could reverse time as the Milwaukee Bucks? I give you the same answer I gave you four hours ago and the same answer that I gave in October when the trade happened, which is if I was the Bucks, I would not have done the trade. I understand that. Giannis's signature on an extension soon followed. I just think they had other paths to pursue to have Drew Holiday on the team with these guys and then potentially go out and add more talent to the roster on top of what they had instead of more or less taking Drew Holiday and Grayson Allen out and putting Dame in. From a talent perspective, that makes you better. I don't know from a team perspective it necessarily does. And I very well may be proven wrong because Dame and Giannis – are incredible players might be good enough to just win this thing. Uh, you know, whoever they hire, hire as coach and however things play out. But I think the, the fears I had about their roster and their situation in light of the trade, I think have so far borne out. So I, I would stay with the same stance I had back then. I mean, there's a lot of do overs, like they're essentially doing over the coach. And as I mentioned, Nick Nurse had a lot of support within the organization, or not a lot, but at least some people wanted Nick Nurse to have that job. I would, I would still, I would still do the trade, knowing if you isolate what they knew at the time, which is that there's some chance Drew Holiday ends up in Boston. They couldn't control that, and if they had tried to control it, the damn trade may not happen. Obviously, Drew going to Boston is like their nightmare DefCon one scenario. Like that's the worst possible case. Um. I just feel like that iteration of the team had just kind of hit the same ceiling over and over again since the title run. And even that title run got dicey, uh, particularly against Brooklyn, and they needed some injury help. And they had an all-time Game 7 from Giannis, too. 
to, to get through there. But I just think they needed a boost in offense and identity on that end of the floor that this gives them. And that obviously the, the counter to Drew going to Boston or the counterweight to that is Giannis signing his extension, which is just a piece of paper. Like it could lull you into a false sense of security. Clearly they have not been lulled into a false sense of security um, because they pulled the plug on the Adrian Griffin ex- experience pretty damned fast. And I'm just going to be interested to see like, how does the defense, how does it all look? Like I just, it's, it's sometimes you just know it when you see it and it never looked quite right. Now, as you pointed out, it didn't look that far from being like almost optimized, but I'm interested to see what the new coach goes in and does. Whew. Quite a day. Anything else on the what did we what did we miss? What did we not hit on the on this is where our heads are spinning. What did we miss? I mean, the other thing I think that this signals to me is that the Bucks are still on the clock with Giannis Tenacupo. And a lot of people back in the fall said, Oh, you signed this extension, he's here, this is great, Giannis is here. You don't make this decision today, in my opinion, if you are concerned about if you're not concerned about where his head is at as far as his long-term future with the team. And, you know, it's just not saying he's going to not be with the Bucks next year or anything like that. There's a lot of season left to go. The season is very long. The Cavs example is a perfect analog to this in a lot of ways when they won in 2016 with Ty Lue. Um, and it, I would not be shocked at all if the Bucks end up winning the title and the things play out in a similar fashion. But, you look at how the year's gone. You look at this decision to do this now. I think it's worth remembering that they could potentially still be in a situation where Giannis Antetokounmpo might be displeased with how things are going and where things are at at the end of the year if they don't get far enough. And, and again, this is not, you know, we just talked about Cleveland. Cleveland's got a million second-round picks, even though they, they threw a lot of firsts to get Donovan Mitchell. Phoenix has a lot of second-round picks, even though they traded a lot of first to build their team, they can they can go to a team like Brooklyn, and this is not a, a, a name that I'm mentioning by accident in relation to these two teams. And say, hey, mm-hmm. hey, maybe you didn't get that first you were hoping to get for Royce O'Neal. Can we get him for five seconds? Like I think I, yep. the Bucks the Bucks can't can't functionally do that at least not as of now. Yeah, um, they've done all those moves in the past. You know, wow, that's why they don't have those picks anymore because they went and got Jay Crowder, they went and got Nico Mirotic, they went and made. They've been the team that's made those moves. And I'm and sure John Horst, like, to his credit, pulls pulls deals you yep. don't necessarily see coming. He he's uh, as I said earlier, he's been typically extraordinarily aggressive in season. This is a extraordinarily aggressive move. I expect they're going to be, you know, I was you know, I shouldn't say I wasn't surprised by the DeJounte Murray thing, but I I am not surprised that the Bucks are aggressively trying to make their team better. And I we've got what, 16 days till the trade deadline. I expect them to very aggressively try to continue to improve this roster between now and then. Now, maybe they don't end up being able to do much because they lack a lot of assets, but it's not going to be for lack of trying because they have proven consistently that they that has been their driving force um, the past several years to try to give themselves the single best chance to win every year. And I think it's safe to say they decided that's why they had to change coaches in pretty dramatic fashion this afternoon. Can we do all-stars real fast? Sure. You did your all-star your starters. You, your you did your start all-star starters on the Hoop Collective. I already forget who they were. Yes, I don't have ballots a ballot. are submitted. 
Yeah, I don't I don't have a ballot this year, but I'm gonna read I've made my picks for the ten starters and I have most of my backups set. Um and I will say Dame Lillard has although he had a, a clunker last night against Detroit in another way too close win for the Milwaukee Bucks against the Detroit Pistons. Yeah. Um Dame's Dame's ascended into I I I'm leaning toward yes for him as an all star reserve at the expense of some other guys, but that that's a different discussion. Okay, here here are my East starters. And this ended up being not that hard for me. Tyrese okay. Halliburton at guard. You get two guards, three front court. Tyrese Halliburton, Jalen Brunson over Donovan Mitchell, mostly because of minutes played. They've been almost equally productive. Yep. Tatum, Giannis, Embiid. That, I think we're for five me. for five there, right? Yep. West's a little harder. I got three locked-in starters. Luka at guard. Shea at guard. Jokic is one of the front court positions. That's three. I got two starting spots left. Front court yep. among four guys. Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard. Whew. It's a toughie. I don't envy the I don't envy the official voters. I went Durant because I just like the guy's averaging 30 points a game. He's been the only consistent star in terms of availability for the entire year in Phoenix, for, for the most part anyway. 30 a game. He had a crazy leaning, falling over, double pump, half pump, shot to beat the Bulls with a second and a half left, culminating a 43-point night. Suns, by the way, six straight, up to fifth in the West. If they hang in at fifth, Tim Bontemps, we are going to have a titanic first-round matchup between the Suns and one of the Clippers, the Wolves, the Thunder and the Nuggets in the first round of the NBA playoffs. I would like to be avoid being the fourth seed if I were one of those four teams. That's yeah. not fun. That's not yeah. a fun draw. So I went Durant and I went Anthony Davis, who's just been outstanding all year. You, could, I don't. I think it's fairly difficult to make a case for LeBron over AD and Kawhi. You could make it. I'd listen to it. I think AD's just been a little better on both ends of the floor. Kawhi has been unbelievable since the first 10 or 12 games of the season. I I almost put him in. I have no quibble with him going in. My bonus to Clippers fans would be, I think Paul George, I hope the coaches are listening, should be like a stone-cold all-star lock. I thought that before he went crazy against the Thunder last week. I I said so with Chris Herring on the pod a couple weeks ago. So I'll have two Clippers on, but that was my West. Luka, SGA, KD, Davis, Jokic. My only difference was Kawhi for AD, but AD is perfectly reasonable, and the other guys were all great. So the, the West that, reserves that was my ballot. The rest of the, the West reserves. I mean, we just named half of them just there. It's going to be real hard to get in, including a guy that you just wrote a great piece about that people should go read, Alper and Shingun in Houston. He's got an All Star case. It's just there are only twelve spots, man. It's going to be hard for him. To get on, but go read yeah. Tim's piece on Mr. Shengun. Mm. You can listen to him on Hoop Collective. Usually Mondays and Fridays are your days, right? Yes. Mondays, every Monday and Friday. With, and I uh, believe Van you're McMahon going to be at, at Jokic Embiid 2 next week? Yes. Or this week? This, this yes. weekend? Saturday. Lost, Saturday. 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 I'll be at uh, Joel. Joel will be uh, playing, I believe, uh, in Denver, much to. Uh, the consternation of some who think he's never going to play there again. I think so. We'll see what happens. But and you, uh, and you be, got to see a, a mad and you got to see a magical Joel game last night, and you got to see Joel and others watch 
what should have been a magical Carl Towns game and turned into a very <laughs> Wolvesy meltdown of bad decisions. Uh, a, I don't think I've ever seen a player scoring 50, 60 points getting benched late in a game and then unbenched and then benched again. And then amazing. Chris Finch, what did, what did he call it? Dis- disgusting and immature? Disgusting and immature, yes. You yes. know, that's interesting to me because that's like twice in three weeks that he's kind of laid the hammer down on his team publicly. The first one was a little gentler than this. I think he he mentioned, I'm not sure he named names, but he mentioned guys kind of hunting for shots and points and breaking the offense and how that was bad. Like that made some ripples around the wolves. It made some waves. People like, oh, okay, Chris Finch is starting to get a little, a little forceful with the team. You only get to play those cards so many times. And look, I've said this on the pod before. This is the first time in 20 years this team's facing actual expectations and pressure. And this, yep. a meltdown like that at home in a 62-point game in which the guy who scores 62 points is benched and kind of called out after the game. Something that I don't think would happen to a lot of, if any other star players in the league. This is the first fork in the road moment for the Wolves, who have the Wizards, the Nets, and the Spurs in their next three games. They didn't have Mike Conley last night. He's been their security blanket. And I've talked about how my one thing that I'm watching with the Wolves is do Edwards and Towns, their decision-making with the ball late in games, is that going to be up to snuff at gut check time? This is their first kind of fork in the road moment, and every team that wants to get places has moments like this in the regular season. I can't wait to see how they respond, but uh, you got the 70-point game last night. That's a fun one. It was, and yeah, I agree. I think we're going to look back at this Wolves game one way or the other. It's either going to be a galvanized moment for them or one where their season potentially goes sideways because this was a pretty remarkable night for them on a lot of levels, and like you said, Good teams have moments like that, and they tend to go one way or the other. And that was my thought watching the end of the game last night, was that this could be, and especially the way Chris talked after the game, like that's a real inflection point moment, and it's either one that the Wolves will meet or they'll recede from. And it'll be well, I hadn't seen the full clip, they and they, they actually asked him straight up directly, did you think Cat was hunting points? Oh, yes. And he interrupted the question. He was like, oh, yeah, yeah, he was. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, he immolation. was, he was, I mean, yes. I, I would say he was, but yes. I, that was interesting. All right, Tim Bontes, maybe, are you going to be at Nick's Nuggets uh, in a couple of days? I may see you there if so. I will be at Nick's Nuggets ahead of Nuggets Sixers, and I will be at uh, Nick's Nets here in a couple hours in uh, New York. Nets back from the road and the Knicks trying to go to 10 and 2 with OG Ananobi. Go to it, Tim Bontes. Thank you for your flexibility and your patience. And we will do it again, hopefully on a less chaotic day sometime (laughs) soon. Thank you, sir. Sounds good, man. Thanks for having me.